Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, first and seconds, Benjamin Opratko will review the results of the recent Austrian elections. And at the bottom of the hour, Stephen Tellis will try to entice us with a political hybrid. First, Austria. On Sunday, October 16th, Austria held parliamentary elections. The People's Party, a traditional conservative formation, came in first, the Social Democrats second, and a far-right party, the Freedom Party, third. The two parties of the right will form a government. Here's Benjamin Opratko, a fellow at Humboldt University in Berlin and who teaches at the University of Vienna, with more. Let's start with the, the journalistic basics. What just happened with the Austrian election? So we had federal elections last Sunday, and the outcome was that we now have the most right-wing parliament in the history of Austria since 1945. Uh, the two main winners are the far-right-wing um, Freedom Party, the FPÖ, and the conservative party, ÖVP, which has historically been, has always been the, the traditional party of Austrian conservatism, but has transformed rather recently when uh, it was um, taken over by a very young politician called Sebastian Kurz in May. So the ÖVP have won the election and the FPÖ, the far right, have become third and together they now control 60% of the Austrian parliament. And as often happens with these things, one of the ways that the far right's influence operates is by moving uh, the entire political spectrum in their direction, right? Exactly, exactly. That's just what happened. I mean, we have seen this before in the past years. We've seen, for example, in the Netherlands, uh, a conservative party going very much to the right under the pressure of the far right. We have seen um, the conservative party in the UK, the Tories, moving to the right under pressure from UKIP in the context of the Brexit vote. What's new in Austria now is that in those two cases, the strategy made the far right small in terms of their own parties. In Austria, what happened is that both parties actually benefited from this. So this is, an, I would say, an, a, something um, distinct about the Austrian case. Now, of course, uh, when people hear the word Austria, they think of uh, the homeland of Hitler. This is not the uh, the far right of the 1930s, uh, you argue in, in your Jacobin pieces, right? What? How is it different? How is it not like the Nazis of uh, uh, the better part of a century ago? The FPÖ that we know now is the product of a transformation of the party of traditional pan-German post-fascism, I would say, this transformation happened in the mid-1980s. So the FPÖ was probably the first party of the extreme right that turned into what we now know as modern right-wing populism. So this is not a party trying to organize street thugs. They're not organizing violence on the street. They're not aiming to overthrow bourgeois democracy. So this is not a fascist movement. But at the same time, it's not just any, it's, it's not just a democratic party as are the others. So you have elements within the party that are close to fascism or that stand in, in, in the tradition of, of Austrian and, and pan-German fascism. But that's not the project that this party pursues. Um, for a couple of years now, they are looking to places like Hungary, more recently Poland, so to places where the far right enters government, transforms the state in authoritarian ways, but leaves intact many of the um, democratic structures of, of a bourgeois national state. Now, Hungary and Poland are both countries that underwent considerable historical traumas in recent decades. You know, as the, uh, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, its sphere of influence collapsed, uh, and they went through you know, pretty rough transitions. Austria, from a distance at least, seems like a pretty comfortable place. What, uh, what, is, what is troubling the Austrians? That's a very good question. Austria has not lived through transformation as did Hungary or Poland, and they have also not suffered from the economic crisis since 2008, like, say, Greece or Spain or Portugal. Um, because the Austrian economy is very closely integrated to the German one, we've had a relatively smooth um, management of, of the crisis. Having said that, at the same time, of course, we have lived through the effects of neoliberal restructuring. We have seen rising levels of unemployment in the past years since 2008. Uh, but it is really, really worrying that this is not the case of an exploding protest vote. This is not a moment of social crisis in Austria. This is rather um, significant sections of the population, of the, work, of the voting population, 
that subscribe to a certain image of themselves and a certain image of their country and their state as being under pressure or being um, threatened by migration, mostly by refugees and by the prospect of what they see as the, the problems of integration um, of migrant populations of refugees um, that have um, fled to Austria since the summer of 2015. What is the contribution of you know, the single currency and greater uh, uh, European economic integration? Does that uh, inflame nationalism? This used to be a topic that the, especially the far-right FPÖ used for quite a long time. So Austria entered the European Union in 1995, and the far-right was always against becoming a, man, a member. Having said that, in the past year or so, we have seen a shift within the far-right from a very Eurosceptic or anti-EU stance to a more pro-EU position, which came at the same time when they made a shift in economic policies towards a more open, pro-business, pro-neoliberal position. Does the, uh, the, the so-called threat from the um, refugees, does that contribute to some sort of sense of European huddling together? I wouldn't say that's not, not a European huddling together. It has, it has contributed to a more nationalistic outlook. What people have seen in Austria and in Germany and in other places in, in Europe is that what is often sold to us as the, the advantages of European cooperation did not work when it came to managing what is often referred to as the refugee crisis, but is not really a crisis, but um, people fleeing from, uh, from war and poverty. So the, the images that Europe or the European Union has uh, produced of itself as this great institutional arrangement and this, um, this great chance of working together on a European uh, level, this hasn't really been put into practice when it came to dealing with migration and, and, and refugees. Uh, other than, of course, building up or strengthening the so-called fortress, fortress Europe. So what um, what we hear now from almost all parties, not just the right wing, but basically all of the parties in Austria and elsewhere, is we have to uh, strengthen the borders. Uh, we have to put limits on migration. The difference maybe between the far right and the other parties is that the far right would say we have to strengthen foremost the national borders, while the others say, well, we have to strengthen the borders around the European Union. Now, what about Austria's relationship to Germany? It's uh, very much eclipsed by Germany uh, to the foreign eyes. Uh, how do Austrians feel about their identity vis-a-vis uh, -vis Germany? That's a long story. <laughs> I guess it is. The concept of an Austrian national identity is, is pretty recent, if you look at it. It only emerged really in the 1960s, 1970s, and it in part emerged as something as in opposition to the German identity. Up until the Second World War, in, in, the, in the interwar period, basically all, all the major parties understood Austria as being part of um, the German nation, German cultural nation, including the Social Democrats, for example. And it was only after World War II and after people had to get to grips with the reality of Austria no longer being part of a great empire, as in the Habsburg days, that something like an Austrian national identity emerged. Now, in my lifetime, I was born in the 1980s, it's always been there, and I've, it's, it's quite natural for people to feel as Austrians. Uh, of course, for the extreme right, this was kind of a challenge, and they had to adapt to that because historically they've always been pan-Germanists. Um, but part of the reinvention of the far right in Austria in the 1980s and 1990s was to shift their allegiance and to shift their own idea of, national identity from a German to an Austrian identity. Um, even though you, you still hear, you know, there's still undertones of pan-Germanism within the, the Freedom Party, the FPÖ. Well, you know, let's talk a bit more <clears throat> a bit more about the Freedom Party. It was uh, the party of Jörg Haider, right, in, in uh, the 1980s and 90s. Yes. He was quite pro-German. He had deep Nazi roots in his own family. How uh, is, does the Freedom Party of today relate to that of Haider? In a sense, it's, it's the same project. What you have to understand is that when Haider took over the, the Freedom Party and turned it what, what it is today, turned it into the most successful right-wing party in, in Western Europe at that time. And that culminated in them entering a coalition government in the year 2000. They were part of a coalition government together with the conservatives 
from 2000 to um, 2006. They presented themselves in the 1980s, 1990s as, as I said, a right-wing populist party that um, presented themselves as anti-elite, um, as representing the interest of the working population and all of that, you, you, know, you know the story. Uh, but then they entered a government that introduced the deepest neoliberal reforms, the deepest cuts in, in recent history. So they broke apart, the party itself broke apart because of that, because of the internal divisions that emerged within this party. The party that we see now, the, the Freedom Party of today, is the product of this split of those who would not want to remain part of this neoliberal coalition government, which means that in terms of their internal composition, in terms of their cadre, um, this is a party that's even more right-wing than uh, Yokaida's party was, because when Yokaida took over the party, he attracted a lot of opportunists, a lot of people who weren't really ideologically convinced or hadn't any hadn't had any roots uh, in organized right-wing extremism. So when they split away, um, the remaining Freedom Party was and still is a party that is very much dominated by people from the so-called Burschenschaften, uh, right-wing fraternities at the universities, and a much more politically and ideologically stable uh, cadre that, uh, than, than in the 1990s and early 2000s. I'm speaking with the Vienna-based political scientist Benjamin Oprotko. How does the party reconcile uh, its uh, fondness for neoliberal economics uh, with um, its populist stance being in favor of the people? Well, that is a question that I don't think they know an answer to. And this is one of the big contradictions that lies at the heart of this party. They have been playing this populist card for many years now. They invented the slogan called, um, we are the Soziale Heimatpartei, the Social Homeland Party. So they would always campaign on slogans like higher wages, um, higher pensions, stuff like that. At the same time, um, and especially during this election campaign, they introduced a new economic platform that is astonishingly open about their pro-business neoliberal positions. And they very likely will enter a coalition government with the conservative and also very pro-business, very neoliberal UVP. This will eventually lead to contradictions again, I would say, within the party. The way that they will try to deal with these contradictions within the party is by, I fear, shoring up even more uh, racist divisions by talking even more about migration and integration and refugees, because this is the way that they shore up support for their party, for their platform. And the effects of economic change, the effects of economic policies, of course, are not felt immediately usually. So they have a few years to um, implement all of that before people will actually start to feel what that means in in terms of their own lives. And let's talk some about the support for the party. First, uh, at the elite level, it does have a constituency among the business class, right? It does, increasingly so. We don't have access to fora and the, the internal discussions. The business world, big capital, real estate, and also financial capital have gathered very much around Sebastian Kurz, the new leader of the conservative ÖVP, who has transformed his own party in a kind of right-wing authoritarian populist party that is always uh, also at the same time pro, pro-business. But you, you also see parts of big business supporting the far-right FPÖ as well. And this is probably one of the reasons why they, why they produced this, no, this new economic platform which is basically just a wish list of the um, Industriellen Vereinigung, that is the, the, um, the official re- representative of um, the Austrian industrialists. Is there some sort of split between, say, big business and small business, or you know, internationally oriented versus locally oriented businesses, or does it really extend across, uh, across the, uh, the whole constituency of capital? I don't see many divisions between the different factions of capital at the moment because there are some interests that they share, um, which is mainly a reform of of the labor market. What they are really pushing at the moment, and that will be one of the big projects that this new coalition government will probably tackle, is deregulation of working hours, uh, so-called flexibilization of um, the maximum hours, um, maximum working hours per day and per week, and also a reform of the, um, the unemployment benefit system. Basically, the business class 
middle-sized and the large um, export-oriented sectors, they are looking at the moment, they're looking at Germany, they're looking at France, and they see what had happened in, in Germany, for example, with the um, reforms, uh, so-called Agenda 2010, the hard sphere reforms and others, and they're looking at France, what's happening now under Macron, and they know that these are the capitals that they have to compete with at the level of, of the world market. These are interests shared both by large capital, um, export-oriented capital, and also medium-sized corporations. And then what about the popular base of the Freedom Party? Uh, is there some kind of class or geographical pattern to that? Yes, and unfortunately, their strongest constituencies are in the industrial, native industrial working class. So we have more than uh, 60% of blue-collar voters voting for the extreme right. Um, apart from that, it's pretty... Well, they have a, they, they are quite strong in, in the middle classes, in, in white-collar um, employees, and and also among small business owners. Uh, their own party is made up basically of uh, lawyers, accountants, traditional upper-middle-class people. Uh, but in terms of voter support, they managed to build a very, very stable electoral basis in the um, blue-collar industrial working class. Those sections of it that are allowed to vote, uh, that have the Austrian uh, citizenship, which, of course, in, the Aust in, in terms of if you look at the working class as a whole, there's a large percentage of people who um, are excluded from, from that process. And I believe you said in one of your Jacobin articles that uh, the, uh, the Freedom Party uh, was particularly strong in areas of decline. It sounds somewhat like the, the pattern of Trump and Brexit as well, right? Areas that are, uh, geographical areas have experienced some kind of population uh, and or economic decline uh, tend to uh, drift to the right. Yes, absolutely. You can see that both in terms of geography and also in terms of industrial sectors. So where people feel decline where they experience it or even just fear that something like that will happen. Wherever that happens, you will see broad support for the, for the far right, for the Freedom Party. Again, very similar to the UK, very similar to the situation in the US. It's um, the rural areas where they are the strongest. Well, in Austria, you only have really one big city, which is Vienna, with a population of around two Two million. The next biggest city um, is Graz, which um, which only has, I think, three hundred thousand. So you don't have many metropolitan areas in Austria. But if you look at at um, the election results, you will see inner cities that are relatively affluent, which are based on service economy, voting less. They're not voting left, but they're voting. Um, they're they're not supporting the, the the far right or the conservative party as much as people elsewhere. So what it sounds like is that uh, the new government will give, give uh, Austrians more neoliberalism, which will only promote more atomization and alienation, immiseration. Uh, so we're caught in this vicious circle from which there seems to be not much of an exit. Um, it certainly seems like that. Uh, it's very difficult at this moment to keep up the hopes, um, I have to confess. At the same time, we know that these, these attacks on, on the welfare state, on on social security, on um, also, for example, um, rent regulation. This is also something that they will um, that they plan to reform, as they call it. Um, so these attacks will not go unchallenged, especially not because um, there still is a fairly large social democratic party. They had they, they um, lost votes at the last elections, but they still have the support of roughly a quarter of the population, and they are very strong still in um, in the trade unions and in, in the broader labor, labor movement. And the attacks that are being planned now by this new government directly affect the core interest and the core institutions also of social democracy, of the trade unions, of the labor movement. So the big question is how, how will they react? How will they um, face um, these attacks? Will they take up the challenge or will they as they historically have done um, most of the time, try to negotiate their way out of, of the situations by making compromises and not, you know, not mobilizing, not calling for strikes, not taking up the fight as they, I, as they should do. 
And finally, do you in Austria have anything like uh, the U.S. had with the Sanders uh, campaign or in Britain we've seen with uh, Corbyn, uh, a younger generation that uh, rejects the establishment parties and has a very decidedly um, left-wing and even socialist bent? Is there anything like that in Austria? I'm afraid no. One of the most depressing things about this, um, this last election is that we have learned that among people between 16, which is the voting age and 29. So among the youngest segment of voters, the far right Freedom Party was actually first. So support for the far right is strongest among young people. There is no new left party that had emerged to the left of social democracy, as has happened in, say, Germany with the Linkspartei or um, in places like France or Spain. But neither has there emerged a left-wing alternative within social democracy, within the established center-left parties, as has happened in, in, in the UK with Corbyn or in, in a slightly um, different way with, with Sanders. So we have neither of these at the moment. But of course, this will be one of the big questions for the coming, for the coming months and, and probably years. So where will this resistance, where will this anger that I think will eventually manifest itself how will it be politically articulated? Um, because I don't, we, we don't really have the political vehicle for this um, as of yet. That was the Austrian political scientist Benjamin Opratko. You can find three of his articles on the Jacobin Magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. <laughs> Some of Los Ageless from the new album by St. Vincent. Next, rent seeking, a popular concept among neoliberals. Stephen Tellis, an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, is a co author, along with Brink Lindsay, of The Rigged Economy How the Powerful Enrich Themselves, Slow Down Growth, and Increase Inequality from Oxford University Press. Tellis and his co-author are trying to sell a hybrid politics they call libertarianism, mixing parts of left and right to yield a pragmatic synthesis that would appeal to a variety of people who find the current system rigged. Tellis provides the liberal component and Lindsay the libertarian. This hybrid is something perhaps that Steve Bannon and Ralph Nader could agree on. The point of view is not without point, but it always strikes me as overstating its case. I find the miseries of capitalism to be part of its inner nature, not some aberration imposed from without by misguided or corrupt politicians. In any case, Tellus has long been a lively and generous sparring partner, so I asked him on to make his case. Stephen Tellus. Rents. This is not a term that uh, is in uh, widespread use, uh, at least among regular folks. Tell us what rents are and uh, why we are being stifled by them. There's sort of two ways to define rents. There's a technical one in economics that your um, your listeners don't need to be bothered with. Um, we basically look at this as excess profits as a result of constraints on the market generated by the state. So the most obvious example of a rent would be, say, a occupational licensing restriction. So doctors want to constrain the supply of doctors that. Uh, means that there's less supply than there is demand that creates excess profits that are um, captured by doctors, right? There's also rents that are sort of inside the occupation. So, for example, uh, in dentist office, uh, dental hygienists um, often have to work in a dentist office, even though the dentist doesn't really do anything but sort of wave his hand uh, mystically over the dental hygienist. But he's essentially able to extract 
rinse from the dental hygienist, right, who has to practice in his office and he can uh, capture some of their um, uh, some of their economic uh, product. So don't employers always do that? I mean, the employer always captures a lot of the product of the employee. I mean, that's where, you know, perhaps this is my Marxism showing, but that's where profit comes from. Well, it, well that, so I don't know how far down the Marxist rabbit hole we want to go uh, today. Well, I live there, you know. So. Right, right. Some of that's also a function of uh, interest rates, right? That is, if, the, um, if we have an uh, artificially loose um, uh, labor market, right, then it's going to be a lot easier for employers to capture that marginal product of the, uh, of the employee, right? Um, so that's one of the reasons I think both of us are in favor of tight labor markets is it makes it harder for employers uh, to do that. You can definitely make an argument that inherited wealth um, is a form of rent. Uh, and so you can make an argument along, uh, along those lines. Okay, let me, let me start with a conceptual problem I have. The, the whole idea of a rent, and you, you cover this in, in your, your, your definition, implies some idea of normal profit. The idea of normal profit imagines or depends upon a world of a perfectly competitive market, which has never existed except in you know fantasy. Uh, and a lot of people would find that kind of perfectly competitive market, you know, just socially unsustainable. Uh, right. I'm thinking of you know Carl Polanyi's critique of of the uh, the regulation of society by markets. So where what is a normal profit? Right. So let me say that. And uh, in, in writing this book, we had this we had this argument over and over. So I should make make it clear that um, Brink comes out of uh, a background in libertarianism, although he's moved pr- fairly far from that. And I consider myself a American style liberal. Um, and so one of the differences I think is I think in a way like you, I'm less likely to want to think about um, economist uh, textbook uh, model of the market as a um, as normal. Um, that is, I think of all markets as institutionally embedded um, and different ways that you structure markets through law and custom and regulation produce different um, distributions of income, right? And you can organize a capitalist economy a number of different ways, and those are all going to have different dis- uh, distributive consequences. So um, now I think for our purpose, it doesn't matter um, whether you call it rent or you call it the, the distributive consequences of different institutional organization of the market. If you organize a market um, such that there's uh, the ability of um, existing market uh, participants to constrain market entry, that's going to have one set of distributive um, impacts, right? Just like if you organize a market and one that has um, active organized labor, that's going to have a different uh, distribution of uh, income, and it's going to have different uh, dynamic effects on innovation and growth. Um, So my my preference is to think about this as a question of um, institutional organization of markets rather than there being a normal profit based on a entirely unregulated market. I mean, the best example that is finance, right? That is, there's there's no way to even imagine what a um, uh, an unregulated financial market looks like, except maybe there was a period in Scotland in the 18th or 19th century where they had that, right? Um, but government produces money. Government uh, produces, in most cases, some form of deposit insurance. And once you do that, then you're off to the races, right? Then you, you know, then you're, there's no conception of what financial or economic virginity would look like. Um, so for me, that's how, how I think about these questions. And that's also my way of dodging the question about what a normal profit is. Okay, so let's um, talk some history first. Let's go back to the 70s. And you, you, uh, you address this in the book in a two or three pages, and, but don't really give it too much consideration. But you know, go back into the 70s, there was a lot of complaint, sounds rather similar to your argument, that uh, regulation was excessively pervasive. Uh, it was leading to ec- uneconomic rents, prevent, you know, uh, erecting all these barriers to entry, uh, making prices too high. I even heard some people saying that uh, the unions in the transportation industries, for example, were uh, taking advantage of of excessively high profits uh, produced by regulation. Uh, So we had deregulation, 70s, early 80s, uh, tracking, uh, air travel, uh, telecommunications, finance. And here we are 35 or 40 years later, and we have a whole bunch of new quasi-monopolies and very high profits. Uh, What went wrong? 
I actually think all those cases you described are actually quite distinct. Um, that is, in airlines, I, I think the big thing we didn't have is sufficient antitrust um, enforcement. If you wanted to get government out of the business of regulating routes and prices and everything else in the airlines, then you actually had to have some government role in preventing excessive consolidation. Um, that went into overdrive after um, after 9-11. In the early days of airline derake, there was a whole bunch of new airlines. I remember People Express was all, you know, the rage for a few weeks. You had uh, um, all this constant below-cost pricing, massive losses in the industry, uh, airlines going bankrupt, you know, in some cases two or three times. It was not a sustainable system to have that kind of open competition. And so what, you know, looks like monopoly was actually an attempt to stabilize the industry in some sense. Can you have that, uh, you know, that kind of unregulated model in an industry like airlines? Um, or does some kind of regulation of, of the old sort actually um, stabilize things in a more socially productive way? So again, I'm not going to pretend to be the world's greatest expert on airline economics, but I'll play one for a second, which is, you know, for one thing about airlines is, you know, yet, yes, it was the case that airlines essentially had no net profit for something for multiple decades. That would seem to be a, some, a slightly odd thing uh, for someone on the left to complain about. Um, that is because the basic nature of airlines is uh, if an airline, People Express, goes out of business, you know, all they had were planes and people, and those planes and people get redistributed to other, uh, other airlines, other places in the world, other places in the uh, in the country. I actually think that period of maximal instability was actually pretty good for consumers. Um, that is, it wasn't great for people who were investors in airline stocks. My point was it wasn't sustainable. The lack of profits means that, you know, you can't survive under capitalism. And, you know, you, you write some about Uber in the book. Uber is, you know, no profits. It's sustained by subsidies of venture capitalists. So, you know, this kind of thing can't go on forever. Uh, so the, that kind of ruinous competition, you know, it's familiar from the 19th century. Uh, and uh, there are various attempts to, to stabilize it through regulation, through combinations, you know, whatever. But, you know, you have this situation in capitalism where you either have you know, this kind of ruinous competition that eventually leads to consolidation and concentration. The, the attempt of, of regulation is uh, to stabilize that to some degree. Yeah, again, I, I think maybe I'm just not convinced. And again, in the case of Uber, it's also somewhat odd to complain about um, enormous consumer surplus generated by the investments of capitalist investors who have a completely implausible theory of how the market will shake out. In the meantime, that seems great to me, right? And in the process, they uh, effectively destroyed what at least was in, main, in many big cities a, uh, a genuine uh, rent-seeking anti-innovation regime in the form of taxi monopolies. Um, if you ever have you ever attempted to take a taxi in Washington D.C. during the 1980s or 90s when I lived there, you would actually see what a uh, genuinely destructive um, self-dealing regime uh, looked like. Um, there's simply no comparison in the quality of transportation in the one uh, and the other. Um, so question how far you want to go down the rabbit hole with uh, with Uber. But at least in the short term, um, they've effectively subsidized the political destruction of, uh, of rent um, in the taxi monopoly. And they transferred money from uh, capitalists to consumers, uh, again, which all seems good to me. Now, again, I, you, your assumption is, well, eventually that's going to become unstable and investors won't uh, support it. Again, in the airline industry, it's not clear to me that was the case. It really was 9-11 where the government, for some understandable reasons, grounded all the planes. And, um, and then you had a, a big spike in, uh, in oil prices um, that sent a lot of those airlines to the wall. But it's not clear to me that it wouldn't have been better to keep up uh, our previous antitrust regime um, and have a lot of those, uh, some of those airlines go to business and new entrants come and take up their assets and put them in, uh, in new configurations. So. You know, it's funny. Uh, you're a political scientist. Your co-author is a lawyer by training. Um, uh, I never thought I'd uh, um, uh, complain about the absence of an economist on the scene, but... Uh... <laughs> Sometimes a lot. You, you, the book reads like a cascade of anecdotes, but without really much of a sense of, of how big a contribution to um, increasing inequality and slower growth uh, these um, you know these uh, alleged restrictions uh, on competition uh, produce. One, there is no good aggregate measure because I think, in some sense, for some reasons you've actually all already developed. 
the concept is not as uh, susceptible to rigorous quantification as, as others are, right? Again, in finance, I think you can certainly argue that um, the financialization of the economy was a product of the state, right? That is the, uh, the move from uh, savings and loans to securitization in uh, the mortgage industry was definitely something that government, uh, in some sense, uh, uh, along with market participants, produced the subsidy uh, for the move to 401ks. Um, the 401k obviously itself is a, is a provision of the tax code uh, generated by government that's produced enormous um, uh, rents for asset managers. That huge increase in the size of the financial industry, I think you can lay pretty clearly at the door of, um, of state action. So I don't think I have a problem with that. I was speaking with Stephen Tellis, co-author of The Captured Economy from Oxford University Press. There was a point, you know, when, when fin- we were deregulating finance in the late 70s and the 80s, uh, the idea was, that, or even into the 90s in the Clinton years, uh, the idea was that deregulating finance was supposed to, uh, you know, unleash all kinds of innovation. It would provide funding for uh, uh, new ventures and uh, that uh, by, by deregulating finance, you'd, you know, let, let the marketplace work its magic. Things haven't quite worked out that way, but there was a theory behind it, which sounds at times suspiciously like your own argument right now. Well, except again, in the book, we, I think, go out of our way to make, um, I think, the proper distinction between finance and a lot of the rest of the economy. Finance is just an entirely different kind of industry. And I think the risks associated with finance are quite distinct. Again, I shouldn't necessarily make this argument to the uh, to the master, uh, Doug Hinwood. But I do think of that as a very distinct um, uh, industry in which um, deregulation in most of those cases was a bad eye. It was a bad idea. Deregulation, I think, in some sense, is even a misnomer in finance, given that um, it's not obvious that any uh, general reduction overall in, uh, in regulation necessarily reduces the role of um, the state, right? Again, all it does is it means that the state's role in uh, in bailing out failed market participants uh, increases. Uh, it just increases the um, the incentive for market participants to engage in excessive leverage. Um, so I do think that finance, um, and in some sense, network industries like uh, telecommunications have a different dynamic than a lot of the other sectors of the economy that we talk about. But if you get, if you again, if you look at the composition of the 1%, a huge percentage of those are in uh, are in markets with uh, pervasive uh, constraints on market entry or very substantial um, subsidy. And so, again, in the book, a lot of this is this argument is directed uh, rightward. That is, the people we're trying to uh, convince are partially uh, conservatives who do tend to have that conception of the uh, the economy that I think you're attributing to me and improperly um, that there's a image that um, the economy's deregulated economy is great, the market distribution of income is fair and equitable. And at least one argument we're making is the pervasiveness of um, the state role in the uh, markets in which um, lots of the 1% are participating means that we should think twice about whether we want to sanctify the overall distribution of income. The thing about finance is that, you know, the state says, uh, basically, do whatever the hell you want to, and then we'll bail you out when you hit a wall. And this has proven to be a problem for the last 30 years. We haven't really departed from that model. Right. But it's not just, again, I I mean, we tend to focus on that dimension more in the book. um, But the role of just outright subsidy, if you look at the, uh, you know, you know, at the very, very top of the economy, um, uh, securitization and the trading income that securitization provides certainly plays a big role. But if you were to look at the, uh, the broad base of, uh, of finance, you know, the, the bottom of the 1% or the top of the 2% or so um, who are in finance, right? A lot of those are asset managers. And that's all produced by the fact that we have this preposterous defined contribution system that is, uh, that is also a, a product of the last 30, 35 years. Okay, let's uh, turn to occupational licensing, which occupies a large portion of your book. Most people in the general public would like their doctors to be licensed or their dentists to be licensed, nurses. You know, whether manicurists um, or florists should be licensed is another issue. But um, what kind of idea do you have of what what, what the medical field should look like if we lightened uh, the, uh, the burdens of occupational licensure? 
again, a complicated question. Um, licensing is not just like being pregnant. Um, you can be more or less. Um, dentistry is the good example. Uh, in occupational licensing, there's a technical term called the scope of practice. And that um, tells you about whether, you know, what are the overall kinds of activities that are covered by the license, right? In which you can get essentially arrested for um, practicing dentistry without a license. You can imagine that being uh, fairly small, applying only to the highest risk kinds of activities. Uh, again, dentistry is also covered by all these things about, uh, you know, what kind of things have to happen in a dentist's office. Uh, I gave the example early, earlier, dental hygienists um, that they have to uh, they have to practice inside of a doctor's office, and that generates huge profits for doctors that the dental hygienists themselves don't uh, don't get. You can imagine shrinking that uh, quite dramatically. Also, again, in in um, in medicine, the doctor's license itself doesn't really allow you to um, to do most kinds of activities that doctors do. Right? If you want to do anything that a specialist does, and those are most of the highest risk kinds of activities, you actually um, have to uh, be certified, not licensed, certified by um, uh, different parts of the uh, uh, different specialist you know, areas, whether you're a heart surgeon or a uh, thoracic surgeon or whatever it is, right? And those certifications are more or less, again, everything here is slightly more or less, but more or less not related to the licensing regime, right? Those are mainly just because no hospital will let you perform if you don't have a certification in your specialization. The main thing that the licensing regime does is simply constrain the overall number of people in the field, which isn't exactly what people think is the thing licensing is doing that's protecting them from, uh, from bad practice. So you can imagine getting rid of most licensing and almost all the high-risk things that people are associated with, the reason you have licensing in the first place, would still be covered by our certification regime. The section on uh, licensing relies heavily on the work of Morris Kleiner, who's made a career out of it. I mean, and I see a lot of estimates as it costs as many as X million jobs or Y billion dollars. And, you know, those are who knows how these are arrived at. But uh, there, there, there's a sociologist, Beth Redbird, uh, whose work I just recently discovered, who finds uh, quite the opposite. Uh, that uh, that there is easier entry into occupations uh, as a result of licensure for a previously marginalized group because the process of having to get a license rationalizes a process that used to be uh, dominated by informal networks, which were dominated by insiders. And she found no wage premium. You know, in look, I think she looked at 300 different occupations that are subject to licensing. So uh, what, do you, what do you make of that, that really you know, maybe Kleiner made a career out of this and maybe there's a, a different point of view as well? I mean, I haven't I haven't read that uh, that research. I would be surprised. I mean, the other thing to note is that even if you don't have licensing, you still have the option of certification, right? Um, and certification does most of what people want out of licensing. In that sense, it would rationalize the entry into the profession. It would make it clear, but it would also create some kind of market pressure against excessive um, requirements. Uh, again, in lots of States, there's what's one thing you note is there's enormous variation in what kind of, for example, hours in school are required to become a, um, a, uh, a cosmetologist, for example. That suggests that there isn't necessarily an obvious relationship between the amount of schooling people are, are made to do. And I've talked to lots of people in, in licensed occupations who describe the hours of schooling they had to go through as more or less just a, um, a sort of ritualized torture they were, uh, they were put through uh, that also cost them an enormous amount of money and in that sense created this very substantial barrier to, uh, to lower income people. So again, I haven't seen the, the exact research you're talking about um, and I'll take a look at it. I want to conclude on just some, uh, to return to this question of scope or importance. You seem to make imply that a lot of our economic troubles, uh, stagnation, polarization, are the result of these rent-seeking behaviors. I really don't have a sense of how large a contribution uh, these things make. Uh, you, you, for example, say our healthcare costs are inflated by um, excessively uh, tight intellectual property restrictions on drugs, uh, and you know, the licensing requirements on on doctoring and other uh, other medical professions. But you know, the U.S. is really an Outlier in the world uh, that, uh, in, in its healthcare expenditures, and that's 
a large part a function of our crazy healthcare finance system. Or uh, finance, you know, we uh, you talk about subsidies and such, but, you know, this growth of the financial sector um, is, is uh, what happens as, as capitalism matures and money becomes more plentiful. I don't really get a sense of just how important this is in, in, in the scheme of things. Is, you know, is it a, is, a, is one contributing factor or is it a dominant factor? I think it's a contributing factor. I mean, certainly. So let me let me actually just go through because it's easier for me to deal with these in specific, right? In healthcare, there's no question that the fact that our healthcare financing system is massively screwed up. We talked in earlier uh, conversation about kleptocracy that it's cut up into all these different pieces, and one thing that does is it means that. The state has a much weaker um, countervailing power over uh, the medical profession than it does in other advanced industrial economies. The one thing I would say, and I think this is relevant for the discussion of single payer, um, is it was going to be really hard to socialize the financing of the healthcare system without actually getting into the supply side issues in the structure of the healthcare system. Um, you really need to be able to go um, at both ends of the spectrum simultaneously, changing the financing system and changing the organization of the healthcare system that's a, that's a function of both the intellectual property and the occupational licensing and other regulatory structures that inflate our costs and, and not just our costs, but the overall size of the uh, the healthcare system. Again, I think that's that's not an either or, it's a both uh, it's a both and and I think people who are advocates of single payer are going to need to deal with that sooner rather than later. And finance, I don't think of the growth of the finance system as just a natural outgrowth of capitalism except in the sense that capitalism is a system of power, right? Um, and I think of this not just not just as a uh, a structure of free markets but a system of the dominance of capital interests over the political system. And certainly that's part of the story of the growth of the financial industry. That is the the growth of securitization, the growth of defined contribution. Pensions um, is not, for me, just some sort of natural thing that happens in capitalism without any mechanism. It was a result of the capture of the political system by financial interests. And you can think about Unwinding that, that is, you could you could scrap the 401k, which I'm in favor of, um, and just increase straight up increase Social Security. Finally, something we can agree on passionately. I think we can agree on a lot more than you think. Doug. Right. Uh, the argument I would make, especially to your listeners, is there's a lot more of a uh, complementarity between the kinds of uh, reforms we're talking about this, in this book and the kind of reforms like scrapping the 401k and increasing Social Security, or thinking about. Um, uh, moving towards single payer than you might think. Uh, a nice note of comedy to end on, but I did want to ask just one more question. Given the uh, political power of these rent-seeking interests, and I think we'd both agree that they're pretty intensely powerful, uh, what's your strategy for dislodging them? Part of the story has to come out of the party system, right? Um, and that's more or less outside of the book, but I'm a, I'm a Democrat uh, and always have been, and I think a Democratic Party that um, has sufficiently detached itself from some of these uh, interests in its own financing as part of the precondition for that. But I do think in the, in the meantime, before we wait for that, that moment, one of the, the, the big changes that's happened to government during this period is it's more or less lost its brain. Uh, I wrote an article with Lee Drutman in the Washington Monthly a few years ago that, uh, that argued that um, the government needs much more internal informational capacity. A lot of the rents that we talk about in the book are not a product of big, huge, you know, one-time uh, legal changes. They're, they're a result of thousands of little incremental changes in the regulatory system, tweaks in, the, in legislation um, that happen more or less because those who are rent-seeking interests have much more control over information than those who would try to resist them. And one of the ways to deal with that is to, uh, to increase dramatically government's internal informational capacity. Congress has uh, essentially has never been touched by the civil service uh, system um, uh, in its own staff. As a result, it, it's a, uh, a remnant of patronage, um, which uh, A, means that so many of their, uh, their staff end up working for, the, uh, for regulated interests. But it also means that there's simply not much internal capacity to understand, for example, in finance, uh, and this is something that my co-author Lee Drutman has written, 
a lot about. Um, the big argument finance always makes is that anytime anybody tries to regulate it in any aggressive way, uh, is that, oh, this will create disaster, right? Um, and the people who are working for Congress are not sufficiently savvy to actually know when that's the case and when it's BS. And so I think that's one of the, uh, the big things you can do is increase the internal informational capacity. And I think you, there's no way to deal with this without creating more uh, countervailing organizational capacity in a lot of these areas, right? Especially in housing, if the only people who show up at city development meetings are people who don't want uh, housing built, um, then that's going to create a durable finger on the scale against, um, against building. Hmm, that sounds like pretty weak weaponry to fight those monopolist plutocrats. That was Stephen Tullis, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins, a senior fellow of the Niskanen Center, and co-author of The Rigged Economy, just out from Oxford University Press. I should say I learned of Beth Redbird's work on occupational licensing from a Bloomberg column by Justin Fox. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, the title cut from St. Vincent's new album, Mass Seduction. Till next week, bye. Thank you.